You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and we are in the middle of December, and we are in an Indie Talk Week, and that means that not only is the year almost over, but that this is also a week where I have my good buddy and co-founder of Bonsai Creative on the phone with me, Nicholas Bugs. Nick, say hello. What's up, folks? As Chris said, it's December. It's cold as hell outside. <laughs> I am not a fan. <laughs> and uh, to deal with the cold, I'm going to let you all know, I picked up this Cider Jack, you know, Cider uh, Jack Daniels. And um, this stuff is delicious. Have you tried it? You always, um, you drink these very uh, effeminate drinks. Man, what are you and calling you, effeminate? Because it's got you, flavor. You have, uh, you, you, you like Honey Jack. You like yeah, uh, not, hard ciders, good, but I don't really use it. I don't drink it that much. Yeah, you, I like you stuff like, flavor, bro. You like rosé? No, I'm drinking you, you like, rosé. <laughs> 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 I just it was I'm sliding. I'm sliding but, things in. I, I know, but, but check it out. Uh, but check it out. In okay. this instance, right? In this case, you are unfortunately right. So check it. I'm drinking this delicious, you know, cider Jack, and I'm putting it in like I'm putting it in my tea. You know, it's good in my mm-hmm. tea. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, drinking it and mixed it, uh, put it in some eggnog. I'm like, man, I'm gonna hook this freaking eggnog up. I'm gonna put some Jack in there. It's gonna be delicious. And one <laughs> night, I'm I'm sipping on it, and I'm like, I had two shots of it in my drink. I'm like, okay, not feeling anything. I had another little cup of tea, put another two shots in it. Man, I'm four shots deep. I'm not feeling anything. I'm like, what's going on? I'm not even warm yet. That's the whole point. Right, the whole point is cold. Just like you said, it's cold outside. I put I put four shots. Now I'm going. I'm six shots deep, man. I had a little bit of eggnog. Six <laughs> shots deep of the cider Jack. I'm like, man, I either grew some extra tolerance or I'm tripping. So I go over to the bottle. I'm like, what is happening, man? I look at this bottle. It's at 15 percent alcohol. There you go, man. <laughs> <laughs> you show up to the party, ask for the drinks all the hoes want. Yes. <laughs> Girl, where is the hot Jack? Where is the red cinnamon Jack? Yeah, man. I was so mad at myself. I was like, seriously? Like, this is what I've been drinking. I've been Girl, drinking where, girl where's that sangria? Let's, right. let's get that sangria. I saw some sangria over there with chopped up pineapple. Will you pour me? Will you pour pour me a pour me a oh, cup? Oh man, I was. Oh yeah, man. It's like it's good if you want to. So if you got a low tolerance, then go ahead and get you some of that. Throw it in some tea. <laughs> you know, girl, mix that do like with that tea. Toddy. Yeah, you know. What I'm <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I will say this for those of you out there who are cold like like me. And want you a little something to warm you up. Don't get that cider jack. 
you throw some real jag, some gentleman's jag, you put something else, but that cider jack ain't, ain't gonna do it. It's tasty, but nah, I'm sorry. That's not I, gonna work. I have been gifted um, a few bottles this winter, and uh, I've purchased a few bottles this winter just to, just to you know, keep me keep me together this winter, make me whole. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I have. I you. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone gave me a bottle of Uncle Nearest uh, bourbon, and um, I, I it's it, it's pretty stout. It um, sounds like it would make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. it's like like, oh my god the title it's 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 a little touchy it's a fucking pun (laughs) or a double entendre sorry that's right um give me the heebie-jeebies making me think about my past that's Um, right you're the willies (laughs) speaking speaking of speaking of uh uncles that touch you do you remember (laughs) do you do you remember the rapper lord have mercy no, but I remember that line being used by I don't know every like Jamaican rapper singer. What line of like the eighties and nineties? What line? Lot of mercy. Oh. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, I was slow in the uptake right there. <laughs> you think I would cut that one off at the at the at the crosswalk. Um, okay. Right. <laughs> so Lord Have Mercy used to be part of the Flip Mode Squad oh, with okay. Buster Rhymes yeah. in the late 90s. Yeah. And he has a verse, like it's a legendary verse, um, on a song called Get Off My Block on the um, Extinction Level Event album. I think that's the oh, one. Yeah. I enjoyed that one. And, you know, the whole fun thing about the whole Flip Mode trilogy and all those albums in the 90s was that Buster Rhymes had a very, very deep belief that the year 2000, the Armageddon was going to come. And so that everything had to be put out before 2000 because every minute we inch closer to what he would call an extinction level event. Um, and so all of his songs have like, from the 90s, they all have like a certain urgency to them that uh, and speed and tempo to them that they didn't have after 2000 when ended up nothing happened. <laughs> so, so we think... Um, and, but Lord have mercy has a verse at the end of this song. And, uh, he says he wrecks more kids than pedophiles. And, um, and I, I was listening to that verse today and I was like, that's a vicious line that might not be cool today to say in, in the me too era in the times of era, that might not be cool. And I, if you grew up on nineties hip hop, you were probably, uh, in a mind space that you should not be in. Because, uh, like, even if you listen to, like, 8-Ball uh, and MJG's Coming Out Hard, like, that song Pimpin', that was, like, just a normal song we listened to in Tennessee, in the South. And that song is, hor- like, it is incredibly misogynistic. Like, it goes further than any other song you've ever heard. And it just couldn't come out today. It just would not be, it wouldn't be tolerated today. Uh, and it makes you wonder what was what was the culture like? What was the zeitgeist like that allowed so many songs to be so violent towards children and women and and each other? It it blows my mind. But 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 he also has a line. Uh, I think it's like uh, "Home sweet home" with monster control. 
I stay in the cut like Ron and Nicole. <laughs> well, that's just that's just clever. Yeah, that's all, that was that was that was so brilliant, and and his his voice is so strong. Like if you go and listen to it after we get done talking, and you'll hear like his his pitch and his sort of delivery is so incredible that it's like you get caught up in just the way he sounds. Um, people always talk about like Tupac and Biggie, like who was the better. The thing people that like that love Tupac like one of the big things is he has a great voice. It's not just the words. It's how he says the words. Uh, and Biggie has a very identifiable voice, right? But it's not this, this sort of rich bourbon-y and we've come full circle back to bourbon uh, sound that, that, that uh, pot gives you. But anyway, uncle nearest, it's very similar to uh, Booker's and I've said before that Booker's is no is is like the same price as Angel's Envy or maybe even ten dollars more. It's not this. It's not as good as Angel's Envy in in my opinion. Um, feel free to disagree, but <laughs> the more alcohol content that's in your bourbon for the winter time, the better. Right to your point about being warm, staying warm. My recommendation: get you that uh, get you that high alcohol content bourbon, and that will be a compliment to your sort of softer sort of Alize chaser sort of like cider, hard cider, honey, Jack. Imagine doing that to me right now, but I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to swing it back. To well, I'm, saying that, I'm, just, I'm just saying that, that now our listeners have two choices. I'm all about choice. <laughs> Jacked up. So I'm going to take it back to a comment you made about big and Pac and I was going to kind of, there's a, there's a transition there into, you know, part of the conversation that we always have about, about independent film uh, making and, um, you know, kind of the journey and some tips, tricks, things that indie filmmakers should do, could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and think about big and Pac and I think about them as, um, you know, like perennial artists. There, there are things about their art that, um, was of the time, Mm-hmm. You know, some of the beef stuff that they were doing, um, East, West Coast, you know, was of the time. Uh, maybe even some of the stuff that Biggie was doing, the the Puff Daddy influence, mm-hmm. uh, the outfits and some of the stuff that they did uh, on their videos was of the time. But when you listen to their lyrics, if you grew up with them, um, what they did was they really made you feel a certain way with their lyrics, like the, the storytelling was like, I don't know if any, if anything really compares to it. Um, so when you listen to it, you were there, you know, like you were really in this story, uh, that they were telling, which is why I think, you know, back in the day when they had, uh, cribs on MTV, it would always be like, you know, they'd take you down to the theater room, they'd have Scarface on the wall and they'd have like a Biggie and Pac album. Like, how do those things connect? Well, Scarface, when you watch that movie, you were in this world with him. Mm-hmm. Like you were immersed in this world and you felt like you were in there. And then anytime Biggie and Pop would rap, you were immersed in that world and you felt a certain way. And I think with independent filmmaking, it's the same thing. Like that's the same formula that would work to make something perennial today, right? Something that doesn't have a season really. It's just, it works all the time is that 
you know, if you put something out there, one, try not to make it, you know, for a season, right? Try not to make your stuff become shelfware by, you know, just harking on some very specific thing that's happening in social media or something that's happening in politics right. at that specific time. Like, don't time box your work, uh, but also double down on the emotion. You know, like, if you can make a person feel something about that topic, about that theme, about whatever it is you're talking about in your film, like, I mean, I'm talking about, like, feel it. Like, not just make it make something funny that someone laughs at real quick. You know, if it's gut busting laughter, that's a lot different. Right. If it's you're actually going to bring someone to tears, that's different. If you're talking about you're going to scare the pants off somebody, you can make them jump in a theater or at home. Like these are certain this is that's how you hit home. Right. Just telling a story that you've been meaning to tell for the past 10 years or, you know, writing something to get something on film. And if you if your audience can't feel it, you know, in their bones, then it's it's not going to last. It may, it may not even do well. Um, forget lasting. It may not do well uh, because with all the content that's out there, that's where you grab people. You know, you really grab them in their emotions. Yeah. And can't tell you how many times we heard that. And again, end of the year, you can't help but sort of your mind can't help but to sort of wander to. What was this year like? What, you know, what did you do with with the time? And in the context of this conversation and this podcast, you know, what did we do creatively and accomplish creatively? And uh, a lot of it was reviewing people's projects and films, and and knowing that now at this point that just the wisdom to know that that it's from an investment standpoint, you can only get involved in things that you think have the potential to be unicorns. Um, and, and can be great. And there's so many good projects, um, but there's not a lot of great projects. And there's uh, a lot of average to below average projects where it's based on what you just said, which is like, oh, right now this is hot. Well, oh, if it's hot right now, that means someone else has already cashed the lottery ticket and you can't cash it twice as a filmmaker. Um you know, unless you're a franchise that of where you own IP that remains hot regardless, like a, like a Marvel, for example, right? Like we always hear that, like this film will work because this is what's hot right now. This is what people want right oh, now. I, I hate I hate that honestly. That <laughs> you hear it so much, but yeah, I hate that. Yeah, because it's not true. Like it seems true. Like I don't. I'm not talking shit. Like I don't think. You know, I don't think there's this intentional thing to where it's like, let's convince them and let's be disingenuous. It's, no, it's not like that. I think the filmmakers that say that really, really believe it. And the thing about it is that so many things are true across the board, you know, like universally true in life, regardless of the field. And if something's already hit and money's already been made hand over fist on an idea, concept, style... You can't do it again. And that's why uh, you can't make Blair Witch again. That's why you can't make Napoleon Dynamite again. That's why you can't make Dirty Dancing again. Um, because you, it's already been burned. Like you already burned that bridge to originality. And you can't walk across it twice uh, with the same effect or same outcome. And it's just, 
yeah, what you're saying is, is totally true. And, um, I, I did think though earlier today about how, uh, coming around in February will be our sixth year officially. Uh, it feels like less because we really didn't, we really were sort of building infrastructure in 2014 and we didn't really jump in two feet until 15, but yeah, February will be six years for Bonsai, uh, in the independent film world. And it's been such a blast. And I started thinking about that, that wonderful sort of magical weekend in LA with, uh, Dick Gregory and his family and Christian and all the people we met and what they were doing at the time when we all sort of partied after Dick got his star on the walk of fame at the, at the W and who was in that room and where they are today. And I thought about Omarosa and the fact that uh, Mm -hmm. you probably couldn't see that trajectory coming uh, that she had with Trump and everything else over the next four or five years. But the biggest one, the biggest one to me was like the rise of Lakeith Stanfield. Um, He was there playing a small part in Selma with the rest of the Selma cast. And he was just quite frankly, like potentially the least known person in the entire room. And he had just done a short, I think it was short term 12 or something like that. Yeah, that's it. And it was like, okay, here's a kid that's done a short film and people thought he acted really well in it. Okay. Awesome. Like let's, let's follow this guy. And we have, and we followed his career this whole way. Do you realize Dick that he has done 40 films since then? (laughs) 40. And he's in three, he's in three of the best movies out this year. So he's in knobs out. Yep. He's in Uncut Gems, which is probably going to get nominated for Film of the Year. Uh, and he's in Someone Great. All this year. Um, in all, like, great movies. Like, he's making these really great script choices. Um, was in Get Out. Great script choice. In Atlanta, the series. Great sort of project. And, like, he's very good. And the difference could be that he's just good at picking projects, you know? Yeah. I mean, it could be. And then he has a, a certain persona as well that I think is attractive, um, for a number of different types of film. And I think his, you know, real life persona is attractive as well, just as a human being, you know, what he personally stands for, how he comports himself, you know, the company that he keeps, you know, Omar Dorsey being one of those folks. Like, it's just, um, yeah, he just, when we met him, I think he came off as um, sincere and genuine, but he has a unique character, right? Like, you're not going to meet another Lakeith. Like, it just, you know, there's not a lot of dudes walking around like him, you know, with his way of thinking, his way of speaking, his way of even, you know, carrying himself, it's he's he's an individual, yeah. You know, and I think that that is carried through in, the, in these films. And again, that he's building relationships and, and has built relationships because of his his character. That is just, yeah, man. Forty films later, and you know, a bunch of great films under his belt. It's it's pretty awesome. But did you see it coming that day? If you think back to the origins, the beginnings of Bonsai Creative. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I, I can't say that. You know, he I saw 40 films in him. Right. I didn't see that. But you could tell like 
some there's something special about this dude. <laughs> you know, like he knows something. It, it's, you know it's what? He, like, you know what? He did stand out. It's weird because he wasn't even sitting with us and he stood out. Yeah, but the thing is, like, my he, point he was, is, he, he was knew away something. from the group. You know? Yeah, but he but he knew something. Yeah, but that's my point. It's like, and I think one of the things with him is that, like I said, I, I believe that he knew it because for him it had to be inevitable. Like this is going to happen. This is the life that he chose and he was going to surround, surround himself with some great people. He had really good friends. Um, and they put, and he was good at his, what he did, you know? So, I mean, he, he positioned himself in the right spots with the right people and was able to hone his craft enough to get even the small parts where he could be recognized and then start moving into the other parts. So he knew like, I, that's the one thing I get 40 films. I don't know if I knew that, but I knew that some of the f- filmmaking friends that he had were ready to put him on. Mm-hmm. And if all he had to do was show up, like he had to just do the thing that they knew he could do. And then it was a no brainer. It was like, Oh wow. <laughs> this guy. Yeah. He's got it. And I think he knew it. Like he, he knew that his trajectory was going to be significant. Um, quality, I think was always there. The quantity part is surprising, uh, but great for him. That's awesome. And I just to be clear. It's like 40 credits, not 40 movies, but you, you get the gist. Like he's been yeah. busy. Oh yeah. I've seen him in films. I didn't expect him to be in. I was like, Whoa, there's a Keith. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, that's the kid that we saw. Yeah. Like sitting like, on a, I think on like a potted plant like <laughs> in the W. And the reason I bring him up is because his origin story and our origin story are the same, uh, or ha- sort of happen at the same time. And, um, and he's on his trajectory. We're on ours. I would say he's doing better, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I would say our challenge is, is, uh, equally, if not more so in our own unique way, daunting. And that's, a great segue into our main topic for today, which is the uh, the traps and snares that are out there to come and kill and eat and swallow independent filmmakers and creators and how to avoid them. Big topic, right, Nick? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's huge, but it is, like you said, it, that's, that's our challenge. And, you know, we we decided, you know, nearly six years ago to take on this challenge of independent film because we thought that we could be of value. And, you know, through this podcast, we're hoping to and they say speak truth to power, um, but speak truth to insight. Right. It's like, look, we, we, we're in the game with you. Right. We're in the trenches with you. We understand how this stuff works. We're not, you know, talking from as we've said before, we're not talking from an ivory tower in this. Like we're seeing this stuff firsthand. Some of the stuff that, um, you know, we're trying to caution you from uh, we've been through or going through. Uh, So this is a real talk, you know, and the reason for the podcast is like we're looking for a larger audience of people who can who can listen and hear this stuff and maybe take it to account and say, okay, when I'm doing my film, my next one or my current one, these are some things that I'm going to look out for because, you know, it's I think you put it perfectly like the independent filmmaker is a fish and you're a fish in an ocean and there's a lot of flipping sharks in that ocean, 
You but, know, there's, yeah, but not just sharks. There are like rocks you can't see coming to fall upon you, and motorboats that speed by from above that thrust pushes you back, and just like so, some of the stuff that's that's even there to stop you is not someone with malice, right. like a shark yep. coming to yep. eat you, but a systematic um, uh, macro um, process and sort of industry truth that you may not have considered. Um, and one of the first things that, and we just say it right out loud, the problem independent film has, right, is, is shortage of budget and money, right? Um, but that's always been a mystery to me and you, Nick, because you take movies, there, there are movies that have had uh, $50 million marketing budgets and still have flopped um, because there's this relationship between the money you spend and the money you make. And the more money you spend, the harder it is to make it. But if you don't spend the money and make the money work for you, perhaps no one will see your project, or know about your project, and you won't make money on it. Um, and so it's a really interesting dance. The reality is with independent film is that there's a heavy reliance on digital to market your film. And there are some pretty strong pros, some pretty strong cons, and there are some, some serious obstacles um, that get in your way uh, between, between you and, and your goal when it comes to using digital to sell your movie, promote your movie, promote yourself. Uh, the biggest pro is that you do honestly have the entire world at, you know, in the palm of your hand, right? You, you have something that uh, filmmakers just 15 years ago didn't have. They had no way to reach a global market without spending massive amount of money, uh, ma massive amounts of money on billboards, uh, TV ads, magazine print ads, etc. cetera. Uh, now, uh, the, the, the playing field's been leveled, but because everybody can do it, um, oversaturation becomes your enemy, which is one of the big cons, Nick. Yeah, I mean, it's it, oversaturation is definitely uh, a problem in the digital space. Um, but, but I find sometimes, like, I think about that, that fish in the ocean thing, and, and if I were to kind of create a depiction of where the independent filmmaker should be, it's like, you know, it's a fish in a boat, like it's a fish driving a motorboat. It's like, <laughs> you know, like at some point you got to realize like you can't just be out here swimming with all these other fish and you can't be out here swimming with these sharks and these eels and these rocks and, you know, all this stuff like stop trying to do that. Like that's not going to work. And I feel like what happens is that, you know, they're all these fish, these filmmakers out there, like they think they're Nemo. Mm -hmm. Right. There's that one fish that made it across the ocean and back. So we can be like that fish, like that one for real. Like you think you're Nemo, like that little short fin dude, you know, who went through all that stuff. Like that's a miracle. Right. You know, that is a miracle to that little fish flipping found his way back through all that stuff. That's not going to happen again. Like, sorry. So I think about it like you're, you're all these filmmakers are just they're just in this ocean 
and not differentiating themselves or even considering new ways of doing business or new models or or even in that space, it's like, you know, the idea of getting to digital, like you said, like, hey, this wasn't possible before and now I did it, right? I'm out there. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's the accomplishment, right? Okay, well, you spent X number of dollars on your film and you made it to digital, but it's not selling. So how exactly is that the accomplishment? Especially just like you said, everyone can do it now, right? So it's like, if you're going to get out there on digital space, then you got to differentiate yourself. And one of the things that we always talk about is how important branding is. And one of the things that I don't know if I've said before about the branding of your content uh, for the purposes of differentiation is that proper branding actually helps to legitimize your content mm-hmm. before anybody ever sees it. Right. So it's not just about having a, a nice, a uh, nice key art or cover art or whatever. That's, that's not what this is. It's about saying, as I'm clicking through the thousands of things, right? I've got thousands of options, if not millions of options across platforms. When I see your thing, I don't just want to see that it looks cool. I want to see that it looks legitimate, right? So when we talk about, you know, you're out there on the digital platforms with a sea of other fish, you know, what are you doing to differentiate yourself? And it's not just that yours, you know, has brighter colors or something like that, or it's a cool or witty thing, that, you know, tagline is like, does your stuff look professional? Because that in itself will give people the confidence to click on it. And basically they're saying, I am confident that this is not a waste of my money. <laughs> right. Because they have options. They could have bought the thing next to your thing. Right. So, so that's what they want. They want confidence that they can spend that money or that time on your thing. So if you're going to go out there in the digital space, then it's very important to to work on the branding of your film, uh, which gets into the key art and the tagline and the trailer that you're able to post so that it gives the potential viewer confidence that, you know, you know what the heck you're doing. Yeah, for sure. And, and this leads me into um how we're going to present this to, to the listening audience here. Uh, So there are all these sort of snares and traps we mentioned, but there are solutions to them if you want to try to be Nemo, but it starts at the very beginning of your film. And I think it's really important to list out the five myths. There, there are, um, there, there are five myths, I believe that every independent filmmaker has, you know, when they, when they start the movie and they start in pre-production rather, um, that, um, need to be dispelled so that we can go to five solutions to help you get there. Okay. And so myth number one, uh, in no particular order, but myth number one is the lower, the cost of my film the easier it is to make my money back or or essentially the lower my budget. That means you're going to make your money back. No, that is a myth. And when you tell yourself, okay, uh, I'm going to only spend a hundred thousand dollars on this movie. Therefore everybody's going to make their money back. 
it gives everyone on the team a sense that the movie doesn't have to be great. And it's funny how the energy changes when the cast crew, uh, the cast you can actually get with that money, for example, the crew you can actually get, their ability to execute changes with that lower amount. Now, if you have a team, you can make it for a hundred grand. Listen, there are exceptions to everything. I've seen a $15,000 short made and I've made a Z I've seen a $0 short made and the $0 short looked better than the 15,000 one that happens. I will totally agree with that, Nick, but in general, in general, lower budget doesn't mean profitability. It just doesn't mean it. it. It, it quite frankly means a lot of times lower quality, lackadaisical execution and good enough is good enough. Right. Versus aiming for great. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, that gets into that whole correlation versus causation uh, type conversation. But I think um, where filmmakers can benefit in the cost discussion is in really understanding, you know, their audience, their reach, you know, it's like um, making decisions at a strategic level in an organization. Um, you're going to create a business case for whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. And part of that business case, when you're you know, choosing a strategy, uh, choosing a technology, choosing options, is one of the things you look at is, is ROI, right? Your return on investment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you're looking at, you know, you're in pre-production or you're, you're developing your idea for your film – you can start to look at, you know, what's the highest probability to get a return on investment based off of the audience that we have that's curated or based on the audience that we expect to curate over time or the curated audiences that we have access to um, that we will exploit, you know, when the film comes out. And if you can look at that and objectively, which is something, again, a lot of independent filmmakers aren't doing this. But you're looking at those audience and you're, and you're saying that we believe that we're able to get, you know, X percentage, percentage of this market share. Um, you know, we can get this percentage of these people. We know that these audiences account for X number of millions of people, 1% of which will buy our film. Then you can start doing math that gets you at the, the budget minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, but the budget minimum needs to be, in my opinion, accompanied by, we're going to make this movie for a hundred thousand dollars, but it needs to look like a $500,000 film. Right. Because one of the things that I know that we've heard and we've witnessed is that some of the greatest things, um, come out of a, a constrained budget because you have to be more creative. Um, but you have to desire that creativity first. Right. Just because you have a low budget doesn't mean you're going to be creative. Right. Just because you have a low budget doesn't mean you're going to come up with a really innovative way of doing a thing that no one's ever done before. Right. That, look, that look, needs can, to be part. Can I, can I okay, hop in here? Can yeah, I, can I interrupt you? Uh, permission, permission to interject because <laughs> because I think something else is coupled with that. I think what's coupled with that is when the filmmaker knows this is it. Uh, so if you look at Rocky one, for example, a great example of someone being super creative, first of all, they had a great story yep. and, um, you know, a great looking sort of, you know, lead man, right. And lead woman. But, but beyond that, they were all betting on themselves. So they weren't like, let me make this film so I can make my next film. 
they were like, this might be my only film. So I think with the understanding that you need to make your $100,000 film look like a $500,000 film, I think the reason why that happens is because filmmakers that are a film that is also coupled with filmmakers that are desperate to, uh, and uh, to, to, and, and feel like this is their only shot, right? Like this sense of urgency around the greatness needs to be coupled with it. And if that's not there, then you don't end up with those kind of results. And that's why we look at these as black swans or, uni- or, or unicorns. Like it's because everybody isn't, isn't built the same when it comes to, oh, um, I've got the money and what are we going to do with it? And this needs to be great now. Like I, I, I can't accept that this film is okay and that we might make $1 back on it and then I can make my next one great. Like there's a certain temperament, personality type, artistic desire that goes with making a film that allows for that to happen. It doesn't just happen because you're making a movie. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think we can go back to saying that again, correlation and causation. That's the low budget doesn't equal, you know, making the money back or making the money back easier you know, you have to attach a number of other things to that, you know, creativity being one of those, the drive that you talked about, you know, the cast, the crew that is going to be attached to your film and the willingness they have to put everything in, um, maybe again, put in a $500,000 effort into a hundred thousand dollar film. <clears throat> it gets into audiences that are curated that, you know, cause at some point, you know, you're going to make this film, um, people need to be able to know about it. And just putting it up on a digital platform isn't letting people know about it, right? So that's the other part of that equation is just that there is benefit in making something that's less expensive. But on the other side of it is that you have to be able to tell a large enough audience about it and get them to take action in in order for you to make even a dollar back. Yep. It's funny that you mentioned that because our next two myths tackle that problem head on directly. Number two myth, everyone in our local community is going to support my film. Everyone in your local community is going to support your film. It's not true. It's a myth. So the reason it's a myth is because, first of all, there's a very good chance that 70% of the people you make films with that are your friends are jealous of your success are jealous that you got the funding and their project didn't or that your film or script. If you're a writer, for example, got picked to be in a festival and theirs did not, or your festival was more prestigious. You got into South by Southwest and Sundance and can, and they got into, you know, um, uh, Topeka. Right. So, <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's different. Uh, it's it's surprising uh, to a degree, but if you really think about it, it's not that surprising because it's like the movie Funny People with Adam Sandler, where there's this sense deep down that only so many people can make it out of this town. And when you do something successful to uh, some people just love you and want you to succeed and, and hook you up. And we know people like that. But 
But when you really look at the numbers, because everything's tracked these days, everything's analytical. There's digital. There's uh, uh, the uh, th- there's this sort of digital output of outcomes, I should say, that that we can look at. And and bonsai being behind the curtains and seeing these things, we know what's really being supported, what's really not, who's really watching this, buying this, listening to this, etc. Everyone will tell you they're supporting you, but I'm not sure. And we talked about this many times in these indie talks over this year, actually. I'm not sure everybody's taking their wallet out and spinning it. (laughs) Or dropping that review for you, you know? Right. They say they're going to do that, and they say they did do it, and I don't know about that. Because your your thought is that that your movie and your art is on their mind. And what's on their mind is their art and their movie. And then the same thing with everyone in the community. It's like they're not thinking about your art all day long. They're thinking about their job, their kids, everything. So to earn their support uh, is is quite a task. It's not as easy as saying, do me this solid, do me this favor, support indie film. Those are all just cliches now. Like, hey, support indie film, go and watch this. No. They're like, no, bitch. Like, <laughs> like I'm not going to just go watch it. I'm going to go watch this Irishman on, on Netflix because it's going to win movie of the year. And I'm going to watch your shit when I don't have literally anything to do. Anything else to do. Yeah. and Which will never happen. <laughs> right. Because there's so much content, right, to be watched anyway. But I'll also say that the filmmaking process is not a short one. Right. So when you start your film to when you finish making your film to when you get distribution for your film to when that film is actually out and available for people to watch uh, could be years. And what you're talking about is or what you're hoping in the case that you're talking about, Chris, is that those people are just every day for two years, for three years, for a year and a half, for even a year, or just sit around waiting for your film to come out. And to your point, they're not because they have lives. So if you want them to be looking for your stuff, that's where that engagement comes from. And this is the idea of curating audiences is that you have to be you have to create a conversation around your art that is timeless so, yeah. you know, when a year comes up and you still haven't gotten that distribution deal, the people still want to be part of your conversation so that by the time the film comes out, this is just an extension of the conversation. And now they need to buy your film or interact with your film in some way because they're part of something. So, yeah, I agree, man. Like your your town, your city, your even the people who are on your cast and crew, if you haven't continuously engaged them over the life cycle of this project, yeah, you can't you can't guarantee or you can't even bank on their support. You can't even bank on that three ninety nine rental. Exactly. And that's that's unfortunate, but it's exactly. true. And and it's not all bad news because we're going to talk about how to fix these these problems and overcome these myths. But um, but that leads Nick again. You nailed it without knowing it. Segueing right into myth number three, which is your non paid posts on social media will sell films. <laughs> it's just not true. It is it is a massive myth that you think you are branding and marketing your film by posting its existence to your existing follower or followers. Um it's just not 
going to do it. Now, we have a close friend who posts about movies that he's in all the time and doesn't even provide a link to go see them. So he's banking on just the fact that you see it. And you're like, okay, well, I'll watch that. Yeah, that's too much space. That's too much space between the action you want someone to take and them being aware of your product, right? Yeah. And then, you know, and then you have to hope that your product's good enough to keep them there. So if if you're if your marketing campaign and can't tell you how often this happens where you see the uh budget of a film and there's no money set aside for branding and marketing because the branding and marketing is um, going to be handled by your distributor, which is uh, something we're going to talk about in just a moment. (laughs) And, or you think your marketing and branding campaign is you posting about it on your social media sites and asking people to retweet, reshare, screenshot, tell their friends, et cetera. You are in for a lot of headache and trouble and heartbreak, quite frankly, uh, in the, in, in the near future. You got any yeah, thoughts on this, Nick? Yeah. Cause it, it goes back to the, the previous discussion, which is, you know, <clears throat> if they're not part of something, then with all the content that's out there, even if they like you, your stuff has to fit into their lives. Right. So, mm-hmm their purpose in life is not to advocate for you, right? You're going to get a couple of those. That's your friends and family, right? The close folks, their purpose in life or one of their purposes that they've taken on as a, as your mother, your father, a cousin, a brother and sister is to be your cheerleader and be there for you and then do some of these things. But everyone beyond that, you know, why do they need to do that? You know, what's driving them to, to buy something just because you made them aware that the thing was there and you'd like them to do that. You'd like them to just support you. Um, but and in the indie space, I will say that some of the audience, some of those folks might, might doubt you a little bit, to be honest, because of the fact that there's so much content, like you just mentioned, I mean, there's, there's content out there that I could watch instead of yours. So am I willing to spend the time and the, and the couple of dollars to watch yours when I could be watching something else? Like, what does watching your thing not mean to you as a filmmaker, but what does it mean to me as the person watching it? So, so yeah, when you put something up on social, like if that's if you think you're going to get people to buy just because you told them it was there, then, yeah, you're definitely in for a rude awakening because post does not equal purchase. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just it just doesn't. Um, and just you have to understand the math and I know we're not at large buying DVDs and Blu-rays anymore, but if your film, because we're in Nashville and you need to make your film at $250,000 to get your rebate here, uh, every film magically has a budget of $250,000, uh, <laughs> no matter what the movie actually takes. Um, it reminds me of, um, being in the consulting world where somebody throws out an upfront fee, that's exactly $35,000. And you're like, really? 
So how did, so you did the math, you calculated your time and exactly what it's going to take. And you tailored this for me because that's what you told me this whole time in this negotiation. And that really equaled 35,000.00. That's a <laughs> mathematical fucking anomaly. Right? <laughs> right? Like, no, $35,000 is a fake fucking price. And it's a generalization and it typically is shit and, and is easily beat in the competition. And $250,000 is an imaginary number, not tailored to your film whatsoever, but simply arbitrary and frankly could be viewed as disingenuous uh, to investors, right? So let's say you're selling DVDs at $12 a DVD exactly, and you have a $250,000 budget. You need to sell 21,000, just about just under 21,000 DVDs just to make that money back. And you're saying, well, it's a streaming world. We're streaming these days. Nobody is, nobody is like buying DVDs. We'll make our money off streams. Well, you know, I don't know about that because uh, when you really think about what you get paid per stream, um, you know, you might be surprised at, at how little you get you know, per stream uh, in the aggregate. Um, we're talking about pennies sometimes per watch. Um, and and that takes somebody, that, that takes your movie to be a flat out hit for someone to, um, for you to rather, you know, get a profit out of that and your investors to get a profit out of it. I mean, it really has to be a hit um, and, and being watched you know, millions of times to really, truly pay off. Um, so just keep that in mind when you, when you set your budgets and when you go out to sell on digital and you're posting, you know, you don't have a plan, you're not doing paid ads and you're not doing any other kind of marketing. You're just on social media. You got to think about, I need to sell 21,000 of these to guarantee my money. Like you don't want to leave it to, to streaming. 21,000. So keep that in the back of your mind. If you have that $250,000 budget limit um, uh, and think about whatever it takes to get the rebate in your own state and, and think about, you know, divide that by 12. That's how much you have to sell. It's just something to, to, to consider. Um, the fourth myth, Nick is, is, um, you know, somewhat um, related to the post process. And it's something that, um, you get told, and I think it's kind of a trick. And so this is one of those ones that isn't a rock falling on the fish and it isn't some cave the fish gets lost in. This is an actual shark. And one of the shark things that happens when you sell your film to a distributor, an independent film distributor, is they will waste your time trying to do uh, theatrical releases. They will waste your time and your marketing budget with lost leaders, lost leaders. Uh, they will spend between a thousand and six thousand, seven, eight thousand dollars that can be spent towards social media buys or uh, uh, growth hacking or guerrilla marketing or whatever other kind of marketing on a one theater run for one day or two days. And then, and they will tell you, this theatrical release is important because you'll get higher bids in a higher flat rate from the streaming services. That is a myth. 
And I will explain what I mean by that, because you very well could negotiate, if you have a good negotiator on your side, a higher rate from these places by having a one or two or three theater run uh, nationally and uh, for one showing or, or a couple showings in one day or a couple showings over two days. Um, but the ROI to me really isn't there. I have not seen that play a, a, a um, play out. But here's the bigger here's the bigger macro point. And here's why it's a sharky thing, because they're going to spend a lot of your marketing spend on this and they'll probably meet some sort of con- contractual quota doing it. And here's why it's bullshit. If your movie was good enough to be in theaters, that's exactly where it would be. So to force your movie that doesn't deserve to be in a theater into a theater is a lie. It's a con. It's disingenuous. It doesn't help you. Why spend fifteen dollars to $20,000 getting your movie in three theaters and have it run for a day or two when that money could be spent so much more valuably on getting real clicks on DVDs and on streaming sales? Nick, do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, we talked about this again, the fish jumping in the boat. So if you're a fish that decides you're done with the foolishness in the water and all the craziness, and you're like, you know what? I'm getting in the boat. Then I'm going to tell you what that fish knows. That fish knows that that theatrical release at that one theater is a party for the distributor potentially for their investors and their friends. Okay. So (laughs) that's, that's what it like. Once you realize that that's the case, like then maybe you take a different tack. Like it's, it's different. Like we could go through the whole thing. Just like you just said, like we're, we're being logical with you about why you wouldn't want to do the thing. But so many independent filmmakers aren't being logical uh, because they're so passionate about their work and they want to listen to, what the studio or distributor or industry people are telling them. And I'm telling you right now, it's a party for the distributor, potentially their investors and their friends. Like we're going to spend this money. We're going to go take some pictures on the red carpet. You can invite some of your friends and show them that you did a movie, right? You invested in this movie or you invested in this company and you get a chance, a night to get dressed up to bring your lady friend and your man friend and hey bring your kids to this one this is a really good one and it gives them a party and it gives them an event to go to so it's disingenuous that they would make you pay for their party um but the part that's not disingenuous is that it is of benefit and of value to them as a company like you got to understand that right this is a marketing thing so it is marketing, which is what where they'll bill it to you, right? Because it is marketing. It's just not marketing for you. Right. So get in a boat, <laughs> you know, like stop swimming with the sharks. Get in a boat, realize that that's what that is. Avoid it at all costs. And as Chris mentioned, take that money and put it into your, you know, valuable branding, making sure that you're doing some social ads, that you're curating audiences, that's where that, you know, anywhere from could be three to $15,000 is actually going. Yeah, exactly. It's a total myth. If your distributor tells you that, run for the door or just politely disagree 
and change the strategy if you have the contractual power and negotiation power to do it. Okay, myth number five. And this is me and your favorite one, Nick. Your distributor is going to take the baton in this relay race of film release and do all the work for you. It is a massive myth. Yep. There's a very good chance that your distributor's business model and business goals are not aligned, or I should say misaligned, with your goals. And by the way, we're going to talk about the solution to this, which is to have your own goals for your film and make sure they're written on a board somewhere and that the producing team, everyone on the team knows what those goals are. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second, but going back to the myth, you've come out of post, you're exhausted, you're tired, you're broke. uh, You just don't have any more energy for this. And thank God, because you were just able to sell your film, which we've mentioned in many indie podcasts before indie talks before that selling your film means getting zero dollars up front. Usually you might get an MG. It will be no higher than $50,000. For the most part, there are unicorns out there and black swans out there, but those typically, typically get bought by bigger houses and you're not really even concerned about MG at that point. Cause your movie's getting bought for one to $10 million. But for the majority of independent filmmakers, they're going to get zero. They're going to do an IP swap. You're going to give them something of value for a promise of value later. Uh, and you do that because you are leaning on their expertise and and market reach to help you do something you can't do on your own, which is get it distributed globally. And your distributor, if they're good, will be able to deliver on that. They will put your film in every conceivable market, markets you haven't even thought of, streaming services you've never heard of, your film will be there. However, you're not going to get any money up front. Maybe you'll get the MG, uh, 25,000, 50,000 up front. 100,000 if you're lucky. Um, and, and, and from there, you're sitting back saying, okay, let's get started. Let's go. Uh, our film pre-releases on this date. Uh, you're looking on the internet. Well, shit, how, how come the distributor hasn't, hasn't started uh, a campaign around this? Like, what's going on? Where's all the energy? Uh, you start to feel weird. You get this queasy feeling in your stomach. You're like, well, shit, let me look on their website. And your film isn't up on their website. <laughs> you're like, well, what the fuck? Uh, like, uh, I thought my movie was important to you. It was really important to you when we were negotiating our contract. You're right. You were calling me every day. You were hounding me for signature. We were negotiating. We were engaged. And now where's all the where's all the energy and love and passion for my film? Well, that's a myth. Um, they're going to release your film. They're proud of your film. They might post, let's say, 10 times about your film, but we already mentioned that it's a myth that non-paid posts don't sell films. Um, it's simply just a brand look, meaning you're getting a, an additional eye on your on your brand and you're just trying to have um, consciousness about your movie at, at best. Um, but their business model is to aggregate usually as many films as they can and distribute as many films as they can and get mailbox money off that distribution. So it's not about your film. It's about having a massive slate of films and then placing those, exploiting those to the nth degree. The problem is, is that your film is part of a massive slate 
And in your mind, it's, it might as well be a blind slate because you don't really know all the movies they have or they're going to have by the time yours releases. And therefore, your movie is just a cog in a wheel and isn't given sort of the full Monty that the distributor gets when they get that royalty statement in the mail for themselves. And that is the part of the myth that is tough to swallow. And so um, you have to be prepared for that reality. Nick, you got anything on this? Yeah. So just to kind of jump on that wagon is independent film distributors, right? So these are your smaller distributors, um, the ones that are strictly uh, not just looking at independent films, but they're small. It's really all they can afford, right? They, they're the only ones like the larger films with the bigger stars aren't going to them, right? So the, the small independent film distributors unfortunately and sadly enough uh, for filmmakers, they are not interested in your success. They're interested in your IP, right? Because the success that they're interested in is just what you mentioned. It's the slate, right? So if we have a thousand films that we've paid nothing for, right? That's, that's the key, right? That's, that's the part I think people kind of forget about, like you mentioned with some MGs, you know, you might get 50, you're not, you know, you're not getting anything. Okay. So let's just put it out there. You're not getting anything up front. So a distributor can have a thousand films, 2000 films that they've paid nothing for. They own 2000 properties for free that they're going to get paid for after having just put a small amount of money into, to pay an aggregator to put it out in the world. I mean, again, it's a small amount of money. So they're going to make a small investment on your behalf, right? That's how you see it, on your behalf, to get it out there. But they're just waiting for that one to hit. Because if they can spend three to five grand to get an aggregator to put it out, then and they can get a thousand films and they've got that one unicorn that hits, it pays for all of that stuff and then some. So Exactly, and the that, slate model. Exactly. So that unicorn has nothing to do with anything that the distributor did, right? They are basically just sitting back and waiting for that one thing to hit because either it was timely, it had the emotion that we talked about earlier, it had a specific star who was willing to get out there and speak on behalf of the film. You know, not just about it. Yeah, not just post a social, but maybe they're having speaking engagements in front of people to talk about this film. You know, there are um, curated audiences. You know, one of the best things that an independent distributor can do is stack the uh, slate with uh, documentaries because those films have curated audiences. Right. There are audiences just literally sitting around waiting for that content. And if they're not sitting around, they're clicking through everything, every streaming service to find that content. Um, So that's what they're betting on. Right. That's that's the model. So, again, sadly enough, and we hate being the bearers of bad news that we love providing insight that's actually going to help you. These distributors, regardless of what they may say to you on the phone or to your face in the process of acquiring your IP, they are not interested in your success. They are interested in your IP. And hopefully, 
if you do the right thing, it'll hit. If not, they've got a thousand other films that they can bet on. Very, very well said. So let's transition to the other side, which is how do you as a filmmaker, as an independent creative, arm yourself to protect yourself against the the pitfalls and traps and sharks that lie before you because you have the whole world stacked against you. It's not just that you're an independent filmmaker. It's that there is a system in play designed to keep certain a certain group uh, well-fed and another group uh, not as well-fed unless they meet the criteria of that, that larger group. So uh, if you want to pay your bills, and you know we started this whole podcast by asking creatives, what uh, uh, what does making it mean to you? And um, it, most people answered, at least 80% of the people answered, making it just means paying my bills, doing something I love. And if that's true, and we could have a whole podcast about whether or not we think that's genuine or not. But if that's true, then then these, are the, the, these next five things are going to be pretty important. So at the very beginning of pre-production, when you're putting cast and crew together, locations, um, contracts, it is critical that you put in your agreement with every cast member, crew member. And it might sound ridiculous because you weren't taught this in film school and you don't think other films have to do it that are bigger, but you're not those films. So trust us when we tell you have contracts that have Every cast member and crew member, along with your cast, um, or I said cast already, cast and crew, um, promise to promote the movie. Now, that, now you have to probably break out exactly how, but in, in like what works for your film, what you want them to do. And it shouldn't be a massive ask if you don't think, you know, you never want to do a contract with someone you don't think they can deliver on. But... Um, ensuring that your star, for example, or whoever it is you're putting um, in the film as positioning as your lead, ensuring that they'll do a certain amount of promo and types of promo is critical. And a lot of times um, you're leveraging a relationship if you have a star in your movie or, 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 or your lead is, is one of your best friends or whatever. Um, and you think, well, I don't need to contractually have them promise to do this. They're going to be proud of the movie and they're certainly going to do it. That might be myth number six, because no, by the time the movie ends to Nick's point earlier, it's been a year or two or three and feelings change. People change. Seasons change. I know I just said the lyrics to an expose song, but that's okay. <laughs> The point, the, the, the point is, is that it's, is that they spoke truth back in the eighties and, uh, you cannot just have an oral or handshake agreement on promo uh, because it is not protecting your investors or your producers who have basically worked for free to make this movie come out. Uh, and certainly producers, this, this lies, this, this falls to you to do this. So you're not protecting yourself either. Uh, if you don't have your star, but certainly almost everyone on your cast sign agreements that promise a certain level of promotion. Nick, you got anything on this? Yeah, I think this gets back to 
kind of a, one of our first principles when it comes to independent filmmaking, uh, which is that uh, independent filmmaking is a business. Um, it's basically a startup business. Uh, you're trying to get investors to support and that you're going to um, you know, create IP around, you're going to build a brand around, you're going to sell product. Like it's a business, right? So every part of it, every aspect of it needs to be treated like that. So you may have your friends in it, uh, but in most cases of your feature films, you're paying them, right? They're getting a day rate. They're getting something. They're getting paid because it's a business. Um, so if you're going to ask something of them, then you need to ask for it like a business and you need to have a contract that serves as your ask. And if they sign it, then it's a contractual agreement between the two of you, uh, regardless of what your friendship is like now or what it's like in two to three years. Um, you know, it's, it says it right there in writing and they're required to do it. So, and it's, it's another one of those things when you have it in writing, it's not like someone can forget, right? It's like, Oh, I didn't, I said that. I, I don't really, I said that to you. Yes. You said it, <laughs> you signed the paper, right? There's a big difference. So right. for, for me, it's this, again, it goes back to the goals discussion, but let's just assume that the goal is to make money, right? The goal is to do like Chris said, is that you're making money doing something that you love. So if the goal is to make money, then you have to operate like a business. Yep, absolutely. And I'm going to give you uh, tip two and three to protect yourself from the sharks and obstacles uh, that lie in the ocean in front of you and help you be Nemo uh, together. Um, tip two and three will we'll go together um, because they kind of can live under the auspices of the same comment, which is your film success doesn't start um, and I don't mean in the execution, I mean, in the selling, we're talking about making your movie profitable and successful and helping you make that next film as so many filmmakers want. It doesn't start at post-production or after post or at the sale of the film to a distributor. It starts at conception at pre-production. And what I mean by that is, is that is the time to, Set a marketing and branding budget and put it in your budget. Make sure that it's there. That is the time to put your film up on IMDb and have yourself, family, cast, and crew start reviewing it. Uh, a lot of people don't think about that, but you don't want your movie to come out and be totally washed by people who are haters, people who are um, disgruntled former crew um, you know, people who just maybe don't like the movie and are, and, and are trolling on the internet. Like, it's so funny how, like, if a movie's bad, it's a one, but if it's good, it's anywhere between six and 10, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you, like, you'll never see someone rate a movie a two. It's like, why not? Why is it in a two? What made it a one instead of a two? Or what made it a two instead of a three? Like, it's really odd, right? So people just want to shit on you. And you have to be prepared for that when it goes out into the world. So in advance, people don't realize this, but you can go to IMDb and review it right then and there. And just start building up five-star and four-star reviews. And your cast and crew that you put those contracts on earlier, they that could be in there. That could be something you say. It's like, hey, you go out to IMDb. Review the film five stars. Yeah, and this gets back to that, you know, we talked about earlier about you, know, you put it out on on digital 
and then you know people will see it and they'll they'll consume it. It's like, well, you have to remember again in a saturated market, you have to differentiate yourself. As an independent filmmaker, you have a couple of options. One of those being your curated audience that you've been working with for the past three years, hopefully to to market to. Uh, but in the digital space. It's really that key art that you have. It's the trailer that you've uh, put up there as well. And then it is those ratings and reviews, primarily the ratings. Um, if you can have, you know, five-star ratings with, you know, upwards of, you know, 30 votes, you know, people tend to kind of look at that and say, oh, look at this, you know, between this film and that film, this one gets a 4.3 and this one gets a seven. Which one do you think they're going to pick? Forget that. Which one would you pick? Right? So if you know that that's your behavior, why wouldn't you think that that's other people's behavior, your target audience's behavior as well? So yeah, it's a, it's a great idea, right? Get those ratings, those reviews on there as soon as possible so that when you go to launch, it's already there. And then your your target or prospective audience can see that, and that's one more reason as to why they would pick your film over something else that is in their streaming window. Yeah, and as groups, we're lemmings. You know, if somebody goes and looks at your film on IMDb and it has a hundred five star reviews, then they're going to feel really weird being the one person that didn't like it, right? Most people will just say, well, it must be me. I'll at least give it three stars. You know, if it's a five star system or at least give it eight stars, if it's a 10 star system, even though maybe I felt it was a six. Right. Yeah. It's, or you won't even rate it or you won't even rate it. Right. So do yourself a favor, get out in front of it. And then in terms of marketing and branding budget, you know, money, we've, we've talked about this before, but uh, there's there's one more layer to it, which is uh, setting hard, concrete goals. And that way you're not just putting an arbitrary number in your marketing budget and branding spin. You're going to have a goal. My goal is to have no zero days upon release, meaning there isn't one day that goes where someone doesn't buy my movie. Uh, I'm going to sell 10,000, uh, uh, streams, streamed content. Uh, so VOD or, or DVD in the first quarter of my release, right? Um, we're going to grow our following from 500 people to 5,000 people on Instagram, right? Just for an example, like it can, the goal can be anything as long as it's tangible. Uh, it's a smart goal, right, Nick? Yeah, um, you got it. Remind us what smart means again. Man, I got to, you make me go through those things. Man, I got to, I got to look it up to figure all those out again. Oh, I'll, get, I'll, I'll get back. You caught me off guard, dude. Off guard. Um, the key though, I love the, in smart goals. I love the A, the A stands for attainable. And as long as your goals are attainable, uh, so they're not outrageous then. And as long as they're concrete, like something you can like, um, take action on because it's so clear, like the clarity around the goal is really strong. Then just put that on a board and, and remind your team about these. This is what we're going for. And not only will it help you set your budget, but it will organically motivate you to always be reaching towards those goals because it's very hard to tell yourself a lie, right? Like if you said, and it was your idea to try to sell 10,000 DVDs, 
you're going to do whatever it takes to sell 10,000 DVDs. And that leads me to the next thing you can do um, to protect yourself against the traps and pitfalls of independent filmmaking, which is be prepared for guerrilla marketing and growth hacking. It is your final defense against non-profitability, but it is also likely one of your most effective ways to sell your film. Yeah. And let me jump on that real quick and just say, I hear you when you say be prepared for it um, because there's budget, there's planning, there's strategy, but I would kind of change that a little bit and just say embrace it because you're right. It's likely one of the most effective, if not the most effective method of selling an independent film. So embrace it, like make it part of the plan from day one. Like this is a must, you know, you are not a studio film, right? So stop trying to be a fish in that ocean, you know, get in that boat. And that boat says, Hey, take control of your future as much as you possibly can. And guerrilla marketing and growth hacking things that that you control, things that you manage, things that you can test, things that you can try, things that you can do yourself. Honestly, that is the sweet spot. Yeah, 100%. Some quick examples would be uh, buying Blu-ray and DVDs directly from your manufacturer at cost and then having pop-up tables, for example, to sell those to uh, the buying public. It is so much more difficult for someone to say no to you, to your face. Um, like if you put support independent film and in a link on Facebook, that is not going to move someone like saying it to their face and having the product in your hand. And, and, and no one is the, is a better advocate, uh, for you than you. So that means your pitch is going to, even if it starts really sort of messy, uh, you pitch somebody 10 times on your movie, you're going to find words that work because you're creative and you're already good because you made a movie and people are going to start buying your film. Uh, when I had my singing group, I, I thought I'd wedge that in there for you, Nick. When I had, <laughs> when I had my singing group, we sold 700 bad CDs, like CDs of music that was bad, um, like, like good, like average at best, right? 700 and in, I think it was like eight days, right? So it's, it's definitely possible. Uh, I made all my money back on those, on those CDs and I printed them. This is before you, you were really streaming. Uh, Napster was around, but you were really still just buying DVD uh, or CDs. And we just hit the streets and we just sold them. And it's just hard. Like everybody's got $5 in their pocket. Like five dollars, man. Just support support local talent. Five bucks. Pull out five dollars. They walk away, and you just keep going. And then your product's right there in front of you, right? Like you can just start singing, right? And in a movie, if you wanted to, you could set up a TV and have the movie playing in the background. Uh, you could have your stars there that will sign autographs and take pictures and selfies, and um, you can mix products. You could have your film with some of your swag from the movie and things you create, and and have a have a nice you know variety of things people can purchase from you. Another good idea is is finding organizations that hook into your film's themes, right? If you have a movie about um, a, a blind person. A deaf person, let's say, someone with autism, who's in your film? Is there an alcoholic? Uh, what is your film about? 
find those organizations that are the strongest, allocate some dollars to 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 buying uh, some swag uh, and a pack for those people, send it to them for free and let them watch it. Give them a gift and then see if they will go out and and post on your behalf and talk about your movie on your behalf. And slowly but surely when you do this, you'll hit a tipping point. And there are so many different ways. I can't go through them all on a podcast. But, of course, four-walling is another way to do it. And um, we've talked about that before. There's you got to be willing to negotiate to four-wall. But, but again, it's very effective. Nick? Yeah, yeah and... And I'll just say that uh, there's probably another myth that's buried in there is that independent filmmakers, artists will say, well, I'm not going to spend my money on that stuff because, you know, each of these events you're talking about, you know, maybe I can get 100 people, you know, to buy my film. But on social advertising, social marketing, I can reach a million. Okay, so let's 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 talk through that real quick. You can get 100 people to buy. If you do it in front of them, you can reach, right, a million people. Mm-hmm. But you didn't get a million people to buy. <laughs> right? So, so, and even reach is probably the wrong word. You can put your stuff in front of. You can impress them. Exactly. It's you can an impress, impression. impression. Exactly. You can impress them. You can put their, your stuff in front of a million people. But you can't guarantee that any of them are going to buy. Like that's that's the myth. It's like so you you're just saying that you won't try for the guaranteed buy. Like you, that's not even a thing you want to do because you can guarantee fewer people than you can show that you've done a thing. Like how does that even make sense? Yeah, it's 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 wild. And and I t- I'm, listen, I'm not telling you anything I haven't done. I know people will say, well, you never listen to somebody who hasn't done the thing that they're asking you to do. No, I've done it. Uh, I've done it in so many different capacities outside of even the creative world. I've had jobs where I've walked up to people's door and knocked on it for eight hours a day. So I know about guerrilla marketing and selling face to face. It is you spend four hours of your time. If you can sell 100 DVDs at $15 a pop. Uh, that's a lot of money to walk home with. And it just cost you a few hours out of your day and you advocated ultimately for something you love. It's really great. I think another great thing to do is, is look, you can use social media in a guerrilla way too. One of the best guerrilla ways to use social media is, is, is a campaign. So you could simply put on social, Hey, everyone I see, send me a screenshot that you rated and reviewed my movie five stars and I'll send you a special gift. Boom. People start doing it. Your special gift could be uh, two two buttons and a, and a bumper sticker. Right? It doesn't mean that it's not appreciated either. It doesn't have to be expensive to be appreciated. Like at Bulk from Sticker Mule, which is my favorite vendor, you could get buttons and a sticker and they would cost you something like 10 cents a piece. So for 30 cents times whoever reviewed your movie and rated it, I mean, it's well worth the money, you know, and you can leverage these types of concepts across the board uh, when it comes to selling your movie, like screenshot that you bought my movie and I'll give you a very special gift or, uh, you know, or whatever you want to leverage on the other side of that. That's all guerrilla 
that's all just finding a way to to get your word out there. Um, yeah, and the and the key with the guerrilla marketing and even what you just mentioned about the social campaign is that uh, what you're impressing upon people, uh, and even your your example of selling the CDs is that you're impressing upon people that uh, there is something in it for them. Um, on the big studio films, uh, the tentpole films, like it's built in. Right. Because like you think about, you know, things like the Marvel stuff, you think about Star Wars, things like that. Like there's there's childhood memories, there's passing on childhood, uh, you know, tradition to your to your kids and all this kind of stuff. It's like it's baked in there. But in independent film space, they don't have that thing that's baked in. So by showing someone that you made a thing, it's what they still don't know what's in it for them. Right. That's very difficult to even show in an ad. Um, this is also why I think documentaries do as well as they do is because the information is what is valuable to people. Um, but in, in other independent feature film space, the guerrilla marketing really hits home with what's in it for the potential viewer. Like That is the key thing. And you're able to do that much better. Uh, by engaging people, not just uh, marketing to people, right? And I, and, I, and I should say, I should change that term, um, engaging people, not just advertising to people. Um, that's the thing. Don't just show them what it is. You have to impress upon them why they should be a part of it. 100%. And so to bring this home, I know this has been a long indie talk, but hey, it's the last one of the year. We might as well make it a a super valuable one and one people can take into the holiday season, listen to over a couple of weeks if they have to and uh, bring in 2020 newly motivated and, and excited about their film and their project. And the last one I would say is, is in 2019, 2020, when you make a film, you ought to go ahead and start a blog and a podcast to go with the film. Uh, it, there are almost no obstacles to starting either of those now with just how ubiquitous WordPress is and how easy a podcast has been made by the various applications that are out there. You can even now podcast quite effectively on a headset microphone and your cell phone uh, through an app. Um, it is it is just that simple to, to make a podcast these days. And you probably might say, well, why would I start a podcast and a blog about my film. Well, if you're the director or the producer, there are two big things that happen when you do that. One, you start to make yourself exciting. That way, when it comes to promoting your film, because remember, the distributor is not going to do it for you. Your eggs aren't all in the lead actor basket. You now have a community that cares about you. Like, so how about a podcast that talks about your process as a filmmaker? And you break down the technical of making a film on each episode. And how about a blog that you write about the day-to-day process of making the film or anything else you want to write about? Or how about movies in general? Or just make yourself exciting and start your concepts once upon a time and just start writing them out. Because that leads to the second effect, which is you are building a massive amount of content for yourself that later on you can chop up edit and cut into fresh content and posts so that you never run out of things to post about on your organic feeds on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, etc. Um, those things are key. And if you have a podcast, you can even chop it up 
put on a nice image or a series of images and throw it up on YouTube as well. So, which is super powerful because it has baked in SEO or search engine optimization. Nick, do you have any thoughts about this last point before we wrap? Yeah, with the last point, I'd just say that, um, you know, I think you know, blogging and having a podcast is, uh, they're definitely two great ideas. Um, but I would also say that um, micro blogging is also uh, a great, you could say, subset of the blogging. And micro blogging can be done through a combination of Twitter, Facebook, and, and Instagram, um, so long as you understand how to use each of those effectively. And, you know, Instagram is very good for swiping. You know, you just literally keep kind of scrolling through images and things that catch you. That's a great place to do that. If you want to really get involved in conversations regarding the themes uh, that are in your film, uh, topics that are related to your film, you know, getting in as your persona, not the persona of your film, but your persona and getting in on those conversations um, early is a great way to start building an audience uh, because basically what you're doing is you're saying to the people um, out in the Twitterverse who care about your theme that you you're genuinely you genuinely care about the same things that they care about. So in the future, when you're finished with your film, um, they're invested in you because you were invested in them. Yes, they're invested in you as an individual. Exactly. So I think Twitter is a, an amazing spot for that. But it, again, it's microblogging. This is it's serious business. You know, this isn't something that you do when you feel like it. You do this because it's important for the curation of your audience and the building of your brand. And then the Facebook space is kind of the same thing as you can do some microblogging there with a combination of your videos and your images. And people are more inclined uh, to read you know, some of your con- your longer form content there, and they'll definitely be more inclined to watch a short video. Um, so if you do have the opportunity to do uh, not necessarily the podcasting, but, you know, short webcasts, short videos that might be, you know, anywhere from maybe 30 seconds to two minutes that someone can engage in on Facebook, then that gives you another opportunity for your microblogging uh, that leverages uh, more imagery, either moving imagery via the, your your videos or just stills uh, that you're also putting on Instagram. So yeah, I, I'm yeah. I'm with you, man. That's a it's a great way to curate an audience. Yeah, and if you do blog from a website like a WordPress page, I I recommend long form blogging uh, versus the micro blogging and those on those sites because then you're on the internet where in in a way where where people are searching for information. And so they prefer the long form value of being at their desktop and searching for information versus the short little nuggets of information they can get on the internet. Like, like people leave social and go to Google to search for, for deep information. People don't like to read peer reviewed text and studies, for example, uh, on their cell phone. They like to do it on their desktop and and maybe even print it out. So yeah, but um, let me let me just jump in there real write quick. Write that kind say of that, content. Yeah, but what you just said is very important. I think to to restate for the listener, which is uh, people are looking for information, right? People aren't necessarily looking for you, and they may not be looking for your film, your product, or your art. Exactly. But they're looking for information, right? So if you're in a long form blog. Don't long form blog about your film, right? You will long form blog about the, 
the filmmaking process or why it was important to bring film to a specific topic of interest or uh, a real story uh, that inspired your film or some of the people who actually helped out um, in the filmmaking process who are related to the topic or theme. Like these are the types of things that you're going to want. Cause again, like, like Chris just said, people are looking for information um, until you curate a large enough audience. They are not looking for you. That's a great point. That's a great point because that's, that's the reason why blogs that are successful work is that people put things into a search bar and your article from your blog might come up if it's well-written and uh, informational, then they will bookmark your blog and continue to follow it or tell a friend. And, you know, the blogs that I read, I've read for years and it's, there's a reason why like wait, but why is like with Tim Urban is endlessly fascinating. Maria Popova's stuff is consistent and great and, and curated well. So, I mean, these are the type of things that stick with you. So if you can do that and pull that off, I know, we've mentioned a lot of things and, and maybe Nick one day we'll write a blog post or transcript this podcast. People can go back and read it, all the different things we recommended, but there's, you're only one person. Uh, maybe you can't do it all. Maybe you pick three and leave off two, but if you can do them all and share and delegate some of that work to your producers, you'd be better off for it. And I promise you, you'll be better prepared to go sell your film and be profitable on the back end. And you'll protect yourself against all the traps and pitfalls and sharks that are out there waiting for you uh, as you make your film and as you go to sell it. So Nick, thank you so much for uh, hanging in there with me, man. My pleasure, dude. Like I said, this is always fun. I love having these conversations with you and getting to talk to the folks out there in the world. And, you know, if I have a, a parting word for these folks today, I'm just going to say, be Nemo in a speedboat. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I love it. And uh, I would say to everyone, thank you for all your support this year. It's been uh, wonderful. We're going to keep this thing rolling in 2020. We'll have some surprises for you as well. Uh, have a Merry Christmas. Be safe. Have a Merry Xmas, Hanukkah, whatever it is you you celebrate um, holiday season. I can just broaden it out and say that. Um this is, this is so much fun, and I hope you're getting uh, uh, a lot of value out of it, as much value out of it as uh, Nick and I are, are having fun. Um, as always, if you want to talk to us directly, you can uh, find us on social media at underscore Bonsai Creative, so B-O-N-S-A-I. I spelled that because a surprising number of people try to spell it with a Z, so B-O-N-Z-A-I. It's not that. It's it's B-O-N-S-A-I, creative. And uh, you'll find us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative. You'll find us on Facebook just by searching for Bonsai Creative. If you have questions, please send them to us. You can reach out to us at contact at bonsai.film, not bonsai.com bonsai.film so please do that and we will get your questions answered right away and uh, until next time Nick I hope you have a safe and wonderful holiday season as well my friend appreciate it dude and uh, you know we'll, we'll see you on the other side absolutely peace <laughs> laters bye you've been listening to the make it podcast 
To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.